Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Forty years ago, a Swedish pop group appeared out of nowhere and took the world by storm. Love them or hate them, ABBA remains one of the best-selling artists in history. I'm Greg Kai. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. We talk ABBA with writer Elizabeth Menchentelli. Plus, we give you the American's Guide to Eurovision. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this show, I think, is one of our most divisive yet, Jim. Uh, we're going to be talking about ABBA. If you mention ABBA to anyone, you get instantly one reaction, love or hate. Yeah, it's a band of extremes. We are both in the love camp, and I will note that my rock critic <laughs> hero, Lester Banks, famously had a picture posing in an ABBA t-shirt. I've never forgotten him since I saw him on Don Kirshner's rock concert. You know, you're a fan once you see those outfits, right? But it's the blue eyeshadow, really, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, some music news. You are never gonna get everything you want in this world. First things first, get what you deserve. Greg, that's a little bit of the genteel rock band Neon Trees, which is being featured on iTunes Radio's first PlayStation at the moment iTunes Radio, you might recall, launched in September with huge fanfare because it's Apple, right? They roll out things with tremendous amount of hype. But it is not setting the world on fire. Now, Apple has been the 8,000-pound gorilla in the world of buying downloaded music via the iTunes store. It still controls about 90% of all download music sales in the U.S. It was hoping to get in front of the change from downloading, purchasing music, to streaming by launching iTunes Radio, still driving sales to the iTunes store. The idea being you heard a song on iTunes Radio and then you click through and you bought that song. But only 1% to 2% of listeners have been clicking that buy button. Meanwhile, streaming services like Spotify, Pandora, Beats Music, you know, continue to grow and grow. Sources in the industry are saying that iTunes' share of major label revenue has gone down from more than 70% in 2012 to about 50% today, and it's shrinking still. Now, Apple is being forced to reconsider its approach to streaming and to overhaul, look at overhauling, the iTunes store. It needs to be updated as the old model is disappearing. Two things that people are saying they could do is get into the streaming business themselves, though they're way late, and iTunes Radio was that answer, and it's not really taking off. The other thing would be to open up their proprietary iTunes store technology to Google's Android and other devices, right? You know, Apple products have kept Apple software and Apple sites Apple exclusive. They're going to have to do something because the numbers are shrinking. Yeah, Jim, remember last fall when the pundits were saying that iTunes radio was going to be the Pandora killer. It was going to be the new big deal in the internet radio market. Well, that did not happen. Pandora, in fact, grew 9% since the introduction 
of iTunes Radio. It remains the most popular music streaming service in the U.S. on the Internet radio market. 31% of the market is dominated by Pandora. It's followed by iHeartRadio at 9%, and then you've got iTunes Radio at 8%, with Spotify and Google's Play Music All Access at the bottom of the market. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're excited to talk about the Swedish pop quartet ABBA, 40 years after they took the world by storm. But first, we wanted to learn a little bit about the weird and wonderful song contest that started it all, Eurovision. That's right, Jim. Back in April of 1974, ABBA took home Eurovision's top prize for their song, Waterloo. This was a single that really kicked them off into mainstream popularity. And now, even 40 years later, they're still being thought of as Eurovision's biggest success story. But while Eurovision may not mean much to most of us Americans, overseas it's one of the biggest events of the year. I mean, think about combining American Idol with the Super Bowl with a little geopolitics thrown in there as well. It's true, Greg. And this year's contest, the 59th, takes place on May 6th in Copenhagen. It's estimated that 125 million people worldwide will tune in to see 37 countries duke it out musically. One of the men keeping close watch on this contest is John Kennedy O'Connor, the author of the Eurovision Song Contest, The Official History. He's covered the broadcast for years for the BBC and San Marino Television. John, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you so much. So the Eurovision contest, I mean, before The Voice, before American Idol, I mean, Eurovision goes way back. Tell us about how it got started, what its original point was. Well, it goes back a long way indeed. It goes back all the way until 1956 when it first started, although the idea, I think, was conceived in 1954. It was generally designed as a specific entertainment for television, partly to bring countries together in the aftermath of World War II, partly to show off the new medium of television and the technology that was available, but also to foster songwriting talent and really to create a competition where songwriters from different countries could expose their music to uh, the audience in other countries, that may be in other languages, other cultures, and give them a chance to develop their songwriting skills. Now, that all sounds rather esoteric and very grand, because, of course, the songwriting talent has always been fairly negligible, um, but that really was the, the original ideal. But it's interesting you mentioned things like The Voice and other competitions, because, of course, they are very much talent competitions, mm-hmm. whereas the Eurovision Song Contest has never been about talent as such other than talent in songwriting and I think a lot of people are confused and in fact mm-hmm. when I talk to Americans they they say what is this show and I say well you know I start to describe and they interrupt immediately and say oh yes we have that we call it America's Got Talent or we call it Pop Idol or whatever and you say no 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 it's got it's nothing about singing talent it really is a songwriting contest and yet hugely popular 125 million viewers which is even bigger than the Super Bowl viewing audience in America it seems like everybody gets Eurovision or is interested in except America? Well, that's not strictly true. I mean, the Eurovision online audience, which comes out of Geneva every year and is, is, is broadcast simultaneously on the net, the biggest single audience is in the United States. Is that right? Wow. So what's the draw for, for all these viewers? I think it's because you can literally come to it with any expectation and it will be fulfilled and delivered. You can watch <laughs> it because you want to see how bad it's going to be this year. <laughs> uh, and you absolutely hate this kind of music and you just want to have a really, really good laugh. And there's that end of it. Then there's the opposite end, which people who think it's the, it's the best thing on television and this is a very serious contest and, and they love all the music. 
And then there's every single thing that comes in between. And so whatever your expectation is, it's going to be met. And I think that's why people enjoy it. And, and there's also the aspect of, you know, everybody in Europe hates this country or that country. Or, and so there's that involvement in it as well. It, it, it really, it just cuts across so many different genres. America has exported pop music from the very beginnings of recording, whereas who had ever heard of a Dutch group outside of the Netherlands or, or even Spanish music wasn't that particularly well-recognized or Italian, etc. So it was an opportunity, and although the Brits didn't take part in the first contest, when they came in in the second year, it was immediately apparent that they, they were playing catch-up with everybody else, that suddenly it became apparent that English pop music wasn't the center of the universe indeed. And in fact, mm. the Dutch won two of the first three contests, or four, sorry. It was about saying, look, there are other cultures here within Europe who have a, a music tradition and a pop music tradition. Who pays for all of this, these months of contests and build up to Eurovision? Well, it's up to the public service broadcasters of each country. It's not, it's not a commercial endeavor. So it is, you know, PBS stations, in effect, in Europe who are footing the bill for this. And they do it because they will get enormous audiences. I mean, there are very, very few countries where there will certainly be the number one show on the night. It may be number one for the week. And in some countries, it will be number one for the year. I think when Greece hosted in Athens, uh, 95% of the population, not just the viewers, the population tuned in and watched it. I wow. Mean, it's, it's staggering wow. figures. And in the UK, it will get 12 million viewers this year. It will be the BBC's number one show of the week. So <laughs> that's why they're putting the investment in. And the thing about that I find is, is at the heart of Eurovision, which I find enormously empowering, is it's an incredible opportunity for tiny little countries to compete on an equal footing. Now, this has occasionally led to political controversy, right? Wasn't there some big scandal with Azerbaijan? Oh, I don't think it's occasional. I think it's more or less every year. Oh. I mean, and, and this has existed from the beginning. In the early days, it was very, very clear that nobody was prepared to vote for Germany. That was just the way it was. No, yeah, there were some Germany hard feelings, could. you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I mean, Germany could have sent ABBA, and I guarantee it would have gone down the tubes. Hmm. I mean, and then, then it sort of shifted. And you do see this animosity every year. Now, yeah, a couple of years ago, it, it was reported, but I don't know if it was proven, that Armenians who voted for Azerbaijan got visited by the secret police. Um, you know, their, their phone records were, were, I mean, this was very controversial. Now, every year there is a suggestion that Azerbaijan's TV station do some jiggery pokery and are, and are buying off juries in other countries and somehow manipulating the phone. But, but as I say, it's, it's accusations. But you will see this. I mean, the British have become possibly the biggest sour grape losers in this contest imaginable <laughs> and every year now they turn around and they say oh it's because everybody in Europe hates us and I think well I'm, I wasn't aware of that but if, if, perhaps if you sent a better song you <laughs> it, might get a few votes. that but... whole decline of empire thing they just yes, can't I get think over it. it you know. <laughs> no they can't I mean when they came last in 2003 the UK of course insisted it was because of the Iraq war 
Poland was actually far more prevalent in the Iraq war, and they came seventh, but that seemed mm. to have escaped the British. <laughs> British <laughs> but this has gone on for years. I mean, the, the Irish, they do occasionally give the British a decent mark, but they've only once ever put British at the top of their voting. All of this goes on, and it's, and it's very, very noticeable. And the organisers of the European Broadcasting Union do try to take steps to sort of eliminate this, but ultimately you can't, you know... The public votes on Eurovision, they always have, either in juries or through telephone or whatever it is. It's always been the public that decides. And they have the right to vote for whatever reason it is. And is it because they're Croatian and their grandmother was Bosnian, so therefore they're going to vote for Bosnia? <laughs> it's all about who you love, who you hate, what you think of this, what did you like that glitter ball, did you like that you know, frock, and that's what you vote for. Well, and of course, ABBA is the most famous example of a band coming out of Eurovision and then going on to rule the world. But Mm. the list kind of drops off pretty quickly after that, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely right. I mean, it's a very small pool. I mean, when you think it's been going for 60 years, I mean, obviously, Celine Dion is another. um, Sure. Perhaps some of the losers are more famous to the American audience than they would be to some of the winners. I mean, you have names like Julio Iglesias, Olivia Newton-John, um, the New Seekers, Domenico Medunio, all of whom had huge success in America, but did nothing in Eurovision. They were in way down the field. I think this is one of the problems that Eurovision has not quite successfully addressed. The fact that ABBA is actually 40 years ago this year. They're celebrating their 40th anniversary of winning. Yeah. And there's really been nothing since comparable Hmm. Um, and eventually they're going to have to stop talking about ABBA and they're going to have to start talking about something else but that something else has got to appear and right now we don't know what that will be So what about songs that actually did impress you in recent years? I mean, okay, nothing really major since ABBA we've had Celine Dion, maybe a couple of others but in recent times, were there artists' songs that you said, hey, that's got real potential? There has been some very good stuff, and I don't want to be entirely flippant to dismiss it all. I mean, we're talking more about, you know, what did catch on with the public. But there's been there's certainly every year quite a number of songs that I actually like, and I think, oh, yes, I would go out and buy that. There is a big talent pool. I mean, Lara Fabian, who has had quite a bit of success in the Canadian and French market, she came out of Eurovision. And this, the last couple of years, you've had Bonnie Tyler and Engelbert Humperdinck singing for the UK. I mean, names that may not mean much to current audiences, but 30, 40 years ago were the biggest stars on the planet. I mean, they've both been in Eurovision quite recently. I didn't realize this, but Eurovision apparently produced, uh, that was where Volare first came to public attention, Volare, I guess. Yeah. Is that right? Absolutely. And it didn't win. It came third. Penso che un sogno così non ritorni mai più. But it went on to be the biggest selling record of the year in the United States, six weeks at number one on the Billboard charts. The following year, he came back and tried again. Lost again. I think he fell down the chart, and he, he had, and that was Chow Chow Bambino, which also went to number one in the U.S. So, 
And other songs like Al Dila, um, that was a big hit in America. So in a weird way, America was having the hits from Eurovision songs before Europe was, even mm. though the contest meant nothing here. have any sense of what's in store this year? Do you have any, is there like a prohibitive favorites being gauged at this moment or you can't tell until the week before? Well, I mean, unfortunately for me, because I'm involved in the contest, I'm already f- so familiar with all of the songs, I'm, I'm ready to commit Harry Carey. <laughs> the favorites are a bit over, all over the map this year, you know, that you never should take any notice of the fans because they haven't got a clue because <laughs> they just <laughs> seem to love all, all the awful things. It's the most, if you like, depressing field I've ever heard. It's just one <laughs> morbid, dreary ballad after the other. And you're thinking, mm. okay, where did this theme come from this year? There's nothing of any kind of up-tempo or happiness at all. Don't cry, don't cry, little bird. Armenia are currently the favourites, and that really is a wrist slasher. I mean, it's incredibly downbeat. <laughs> I personally think that it's either going to be the UK or Ukraine are going to win this year. And I, I'm tipping the Ukraine because I think they will get an enormous sympathy vote from the international audience. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a, it's a pretty up-tempo, catchy song. It's one of the very few that in. So I, I'm going with the UK or Ukraine, but um, you never know. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. John, it's been a real pleasure, a delight, talking to you about Eurovision. You haven't convinced us we want to go, but I'm, I'm glad you're there. Oh, no, you must come. Everybody <laughs> should come to Eurovision at least once, definitely. All right. Yes, and I will be there this year. I'll, I'll, we're thinking of you guys, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for talking to us. Pleasure. John Kennedy O'Connor is the author of the Eurovision Song Contest, The Official History, and he'll be commenting on this year's show for San Marino when things get underway May 6th in Denmark. While Jim and I are placing our bets on this year's Eurovision winner, we're going to take a short break. When we return, critic Elizabeth Vincentelli fills us in on the 40 years since ABBA's big Eurovision break. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.
That's ABBA performing Waterloo live on the 1974 Eurovision Song Contest. Jim, as we've been discussing, Eurovision isn't exactly known for launching music careers, but the Swedish quartet was a big exception. ABBA, an acronym for members Anafrid or Frida Linkstead, Benny Andersson, Bjorn Olveas, and Agneta Falskog made its debut at the contest 40 years ago this month. They were the first Swedish act to take home the prize, and Waterloo kicked off a slew of hit singles that made ABBA the top-selling pop group of the 70s before the band called it quits in 1983. On the 40th anniversary of ABBA's breakthrough, we're looking back at the band's complex history. And when we say complex, it's not just because the group contained two real-life couples who married and then divorced, Bjorn and Agnita on the one hand and Frida and Benny on the other, but because audiences around the world have had a love-hate relationship with the group. Weirdly enough, Greg, a decade after ABBA's heyday, they began to become hugely popular again, first with the gay and punk subcultures, then with mass audiences through phenomena like Muriel's Wedding and the smash on Broadway Mamma Mia. To help us make sense of four decades of ABBA, we're joined by Elizabeth Vincentelli. By day, she is the drama critic for the New York Post, but at night, she is an ABBA historian and superfan who wrote a book in the 33 and a third series about the greatest hits collection, ABBA Gold. Elizabeth, welcome to Sound Opinions. Well, thank you. Okay, Elizabeth, first things first. Some people are groaning right now because we're going to spend some time talking about ABBA. You know, to some people, they represent the nadir of everything they hate about pop music. The superficiality, the campiness, the emphasis on on outfits and image over music. But since ABBA Gold came out in 92, there's been a major reassessment of this band. So why should skeptics give ABBA a chance? Well, they they did have this uh, image of being very polished, which also the reality was a lot more complicated. But at the time, it was not that easy to parse, actually. But uh, and listen, I mean, I totally understand people who don't like ABBA. I mean, there's something about them that rubs people off the wrong way. But I think it's a band also that means a lot to a lot of people. And it, it's just really strange to me the way it touches such a very diverse bunch of people. I mean, you have, you know, it's a little obvious when someone like Stephen Merritt from Magnetic Fields says that he really admires their their craft and their songwriting. When you have the leader of a metal band like Opeth say, oh, they are the biggest influence on me. I, I don't know. I just find this completely intriguing. When you see also the number of completely different bands that have covered, everybody from Chris Knox from the Tall Dwarfs, I mean, just everybody has covered them. It just never ceases to amaze me. One of the the themes that you address in your assessment of gold is that Frida, the brunette, was really Mm -hmm. the sole powerhouse of this group. I mean, what a story, right? You know, post-war baby. She's a single mother as a teenager. So she begins singing cabaret songs. And you kind of talk about the soul that Frida brings to everything, whereas Agnetha... You know, a little more polished. I mean, she'll cry in the videos, and you can hear the sadness in the songs. But it, but well, Frida had it all going on, right? Yeah. Well, Frida was more of a performer in the Broadway sense. And you make me talk. And you make me feel. And you make me show. What I'm trying to Frida was kind of acting out the songs, and, and Agnita was, uh, I mean, still is, someone who's very, very uh, guarded and private. She was pretty much 
you take a pop star, she was exactly the opposite. She hated traveling. She hated performing on stage. But what's interesting about Agneda is she had a very uh, fruitful solo career before ABBA. She had a lot of number one songs. She released five or six solo albums. She was a songwriter writing her own material. In the mid-60s, not that common. Her solo albums in some ways kind of were echoes of something that Carole King was doing here when Mm. Carole King started performing her own material. What was interesting was the yin-yang of, of Frida Nakneta as the visible face of the band. And then you had the two guys behind who also were also yin-yang, you know, two very opposite personalities, one very outgoing and the other one a total geek musician. I mean, Benny Anderson is the, the kind of ur-geek muso. Mm. The guy is just incredible. And, and, and Bjorn was a lot more outgoing. He liked socializing. So they always had that, that dual, that split personality thing going both with the guys and the and, and with the women, it was really fascinating to look also like the the psychodynamics between them because of course they were married to each other. It was just bizarre. Right. Two couples, and you know, and this is fascinating. You you talk a lot about the series of videos that were made, and there was when when Gold was released. Shortly thereafter, there came a VHS tape and eventually a DVD with a video mm-hmm. for every one of those songs, and they were mostly uh, or all directed by Lassie Holstrom, right? Mm-hmm. Who who made My yep. Do- Life Is a Dog and Chocolate and Cider House Rules, serious director. But these videos are anything but serious. Oh, my God. The profile shots of the two <laughs> women on a mountaintop oh, in white totally fur. Iconic. You know, and, and yeah. And yet, you know, the thing that's fascinating about gold, you make this point, the best of collection comes with a black cover and no pictures. You know, how much was, was image and how much was just, just listen to the music? I think both. I mean, in the case of Gold, it was really the emphasis was on the songs. But then with the albums, they, they always were on the cover. The videos very drew from their personal lives because they were often at you know restaurants they'd like to go to and they they were frolicking mm. um, <laughs> in the Stockholm album on, on on their own boat. I mean, it was really this weird kind of almost like Real Housewives of Stockholm thing <laughs> going oh, on before, great. which is bizarre. The very elaborate, very well edited thing that kind of straddled this line between private and personal, they, they really staged their personal lives in a way. I mean, of course, people knew they were married and the whole thing was going on, but the way they staged themselves was just very, uh, I, f- I still find it completely fascinating and it's still going on. That is what's, you know, I mean, they're all actually very good friends. Well, they weren't afraid to, to go over the top. They weren't afraid to have this sort of very ripe kind of theatricality. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and they didn't seem to care that the critics didn't seem to go for that, especially in the U.S. where, where they were criticized well, in Sweden for either. They were, the critics in Sweden hated them. Mm-hmm. They thought they were just complete like commercial garbage and politically reactionary, which is a big part of the, the attacks on ABBA in Sweden was there. They were meant to be, they were seen as being uh, rich, you know, rich bourgeois pigs, really. <laughs> we have to remember, this is like the the peak of like uh, social activism, you know, in the in the in the 70s. And, and Sweden was a very, very lefty country. So they, to have those, yes, yeah, those four people flaunting their wealth in their powerboats, <laughs> in their private islands, I mean, <laughs> 
Oh, you'll you'll remember, Greg, we talked about this when we did a show on Swedish pop and, and Sweden on the world tour. That Prague movement, P-R-O-G-G, was, was yes. you know, more serious and stuffy than, than Dylan ever has been accused right. of being. Right, And they were not serious in the way they presented themselves, which was, which was great. Now, I wanted to get another point, Elizabeth, that you raised when you talked about the personalities in the band. You know, the way that the women and the men had these distinct personalities but in some ways accused of sexism in some quarters because it was kind of the guys writing the songs and doing the producing mm. this fengalis behind the scenes while the the women were up front sort of more as the props for what they were doing but as he said agnita especially uh, th- these were accomplished songwriters in their own right why did Agnita not play a bigger role, for example, in the songwriting in ABBA? That's always been a little bit of a mystery to me. I My understanding is that they actually, the guys actually, the men asked her to contribute some songs and she refused. Uh, she was just not interested in participating. She was uh, happy to uh, be an interpreter. I think she's, she co-wrote only one song on their first album of all their of all their records how can i forget you when my world is breaking down you're all i have you're all i want i believe they were supportive of that but yeah, it didn't happen, and um, Frida w- wasn't writing in that way. Her, she was very invested in uh, in the staging and the performance, but she was not really uh, into. But then there were all these accusations that yes, there were puppets, and they would go into the studio, and and the men would make them record take after take after take, and drive into tears with their crazy perfectionism. But a lot of records of the time, and I talked to people who worked on the records, and they were saying that. Everybody was so into this crazy zone that they would just spend hours on, on one song. and then. But then at the same time, the records were done pretty fast. So it was both very intense. Like it was like a kind of short, sharp shock of, of recording. And the division of labor was pretty well established, although at the same time, they were pretty open to ideas that the women would come up with in terms of how they would, their take on a song. So I think there was some give and take, although something you would not necessarily see when you looked at the finished product. You did quote uh, the critic Barry Walters, who who talked about them as sort of being a single unisex voice, which I found interesting because, you know... The guys would wear these outrageous outfits, too. I mean, the satin flares, the white boots, the blue eyeshadow, mm-hmm. and that was just the guys, right? I mean, it was the <laughs> <laughs> And the idea of this unisex voice is interesting to me, that it was not particularly sexual music. Would you agree that that was part of the appeal? I mean, for audiences in the U.S. and, and England, there was this otherworldliness of a Swedish band because, really, there wasn't— People were so used to America and and England dominating the market. Of course, if you come from, I mean, I'm French, so I grew up in the same situation as the people from ABBA would be. That is, you listen to a lot of songs and you don't really understand. And I think ABBA was its take on pop. They kind of filter it through the prism of people who are not used to feeling lyrics in English that deeply because they're filtered through the fact that it's your second language. And for them, I think that kind of adds this kind of distance to to the identification between the voice and the lyric. And I think that's a very specific thing to someone who's singing not in their first language. 
Agneta was also never really comfortable singing in English, and she's the one who has the strongest accent uh, on the record. And when you hear the interview, she can barely speak English at all. And her own solo records are mostly in Swedish. So she really did not like singing in English. And there was this distance of some. sometimes I would really wonder, like, does she, does she really understand <laughs> the, the <laughs> everything? I mean, she did, obviously, but I think you're not feeling it the same way. And it's easier to have a distance when you don't have that primal understanding of a language. Whatever happened to our love, I wish I understood. It used to be so nice, it used to be so good. I love that mix of uh, restraint and, you know, and there's the cliche of the kind of reserved Nordic temperament, Mm -hmm. whether that's true or not, but that's definitely, I think it's part of the appeal. And the fact that there's this warmth also. Um, and they worked really hard <laughs> on achieving that warmth. It's a it's a great example of um, of impeccable studio technique. I mean, I just love that about them. It's just the impeccable studio technique they had. Another song that's both uh, very personal and very removed, Waterloo. There's that upbeat melody. It's undeniable. But they're referencing in the lyrics Napoleon's defeat in 1815, which is a weird metaphor for a failing relationship. What the heck were they doing bringing that song to Eurovision? That was their their second try trying to make it to the Eurovision contest. They were very aware. They were like, we're, we're a Swedish band. Swedish at the time is a, is a backwater. I mean, now we we all think, oh, Swedish men, they're so great. There's so many of them. They're wonderful. But at the time, it was thought of as a total backwater, even in Europe. I mean, what comes out of there? Like really herring and nothing else. <laughs> uh, and so they they were like, this is our this is our chance. This is the only way we can we could make the best music ever, and nobody will pay attention. We have to get on that stage. We we have to do that. And it was very. Again, in retrospect, it's kind of amusing that they didn't have that faith in their song that the songs could, the music could carry them to an international stage. But they really thought, like, this is our chance. This is it. So they just went full on. And of course, 74 is the you know, peak of glam rock. So their outfits were not much crazier than something that Gary Glitter or, or even the, you know, the New York Dolls are going to come a little later would wear, sure. like platform shoes and satin pants. That's all. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds nuts now, but really, it's at the time, it was like, okay, all right, let's put them on the cavit, which they did, too, a few years later. <laughs> Talking about Eurovision gets at the root of sort of the three camps that were responsible for the huge reevaluation of ABBA in the early 90s that, that continues to this day. First, you had the Europeans who, you know, they loved the American and the British music, but they had no music to call their own. And so... 
ABBA kind of gave heroes and heroines to an entire continent, right? And then you have yeah, the, the, the gay underground, which you write about, sort of attracted by the camp and the theatrical elements. And then, of course, any group of outsiders don't fit in anywhere else are going to be embraced by the punks. And so punk, which is, you know, musically diametrically different from ABBA, starts to love ABBA. And can you talk about those three different camps and how all those things, un- unlikely soulmates, come together to all love ABBA? They all kind of converged at around the time uh, ABBA Gold came out, although the, the theater part, like Mamma Mia, came a little low, and that gave another boost to, to ABBA. It's just yeah. like it's the gift that keeps on giving that thing. <laughs> um, but uh, mm. it's, uh, yeah, it was a really odd. I think to me it's one of the inexplicable mysteries of music. This band was able to get the, the Kirk Cobains and the, and, and the punks. I'd, it's really hard to explain why a band that embodied a sense of conformity, I mean, there were two married couples, whiter than white, not a, a rebellious bone in their perfect Scandinavian bodies. <laughs> How they came to be embraced by, by the, the underdog is it's something that really baffles me. I'm nothing special, in fact, I'm a baby boy. If I tell a joke, you probably heard it before. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we'll hear more about those sequin Swedes from ABBA expert Elizabeth Vincentelli. But first, we want to hear from you. What do you think about ABBA? Call Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is the great Meryl Streep covering Abba's Mamma Mia in the 2008 movie musical of the same name. Just one example of the sweeping influence of this band. This month marks the 40th anniversary of ABBA's breakout performance on Eurovision in 1974, and we're celebrating the occasion with critic Elizabeth Vincentelli. 
since Anifried Linkstad, Benny Anderson, Bjorn Ulvaeus, and Agnita Falstag came bursting onto the world stage in 74, they've been dismissed as rich bourgeois pigs, they've been ridiculed for their outlandish outfits and campy songs, and famed Village Voice music critic Robert Criscow once accused them even of writing advertising jingle music. But Jim, you gotta admit that ABBA's success speaks for itself. ABBA Gold, their 1992 Best Of collection, is one of the top-selling albums in European history and has repeatedly climbed back into the charts since its first release. That's been hard for some critics to grasp. Not only are they singing in their second language, but ABBA's music is also extremely polished, which may make it have less of an emotional punch for some listeners. So, Elizabeth, what is it about ABBA that people connect with so strongly? There was kind of sense of giving yourself to unfiltered emotion in their music that was very palpable. And, and it's weird to say unfiltered because, of course, their stuff was like really thought through. But there's something about those songs that really touch people on a very, very primal level. There's a sense that they really sang to you and you alone. And what, one of my personal favorites is, is not on Amber Gold. It's an album track from uh, Voulez-vous, which was their disco album. And it's called If It Wasn't For The Night. It's very uplifting. And there, there's this kind of undercurrent of, of melancholia through it. So th- that mix of uplift and melancholia uh, makes it very, it's, it kind of insinuates itself in, in your head because it's just an incredibly catchy melody. I mean, I just I could listen to the bass line from that song like forever. It's such a great bass line. But what makes it stay with you is the fact that you feel the people who are singing this, they're not giving all of themselves to you. You feel like there's more to know and you're going to go yes. back to the song and try to figure out what is behind mm. that, that kind of yes. opaqueness. It's almost like a little challenge that you have to solve. What's interesting, too, is actually there was another big 70s band that was also really very consumed by the psychosexual dynamics was, of course, Fleetwood Mac. Mm-hmm. And rumors and, and all that, they were really huge around the time that ABBA was huge as well, like second part of the 70s. But yet they've endured in a completely different way. I mean, their image is completely different from ABBA, even though the basis was a little similar-ish. But there was a kind of chauffeur's you know, feel about them. There was the whole, like, hedonistic L.A. druggy scene that they were very associated with, uh, this kind of decadent lifestyle. And Abba could not have been more opposite from that. Again, they were the similar and yet completely opposite. And it's interesting to see their different legacies and how, I mean, I can't even imagine like a musical. Actually, no, no, that would be great. A, a Fleetwood Mac musical would be completely brilliant. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't want to see that. No, you're right. They've, they've gone in completely opposite directions. I think you sort of touch on that in the book a little bit, that the personalities, especially in the U.S., were not as well known as they were in Europe. Whereas in Fleetwood Mac, it seemed like everybody knew what their personal lives were all about and, and really got into you know, the internal drama of that group is sort of being reflected in the music, where you never really got that sort of People magazine ABBA investigation. You know, it, it no, wasn't on that level at all. 
And also you had the sense that Fleetwood Mac really kind of embraced the, the pop star life. You could picture them, you know, snorting coke on a jet. Right, right, <laughs> Picture right. them. not saying they did it. Probably they did, but... <laughs> There was a lot of vicarious thrills yeah. associated with them. Whereas with ABBA, they just were not into that. They would go on shows and talk about their kids. I mean, like if they were coming of age now, I, I don't even think that they would be viable now because the lack of privacy of the pop star now and this heightened attention to, to every little detail. Yeah, um, I, I'd, really like, I'd really like Benny and Frida to sit down with Kanye for two hours. And I think they oh would just God. do that boy I mean, a world of good. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get your take on a few more songs because you have mm-hmm. some very funny critical observations in the book. Money, money, money. That song to me is a song in, in search of a musical. Uh, it feels <laughs> like something cut out of cabaret or something. It's not a surprise. They ended up writing some great musicals, actually. I'm not referring to Mamma Mia, which I don't count as a musical by, by them. But, right. uh, I mean, I love chess. I think chess is fantastic. Uh, you're talking and, about that chess and, uh, musical where the American and Soviet grandmasters are facing off. Isn't that right? They wrote that with Tim Rice, right? Yes, yes. That was, yes. But Tim Rice was really hot after his collaboration with Andrea Weber, so they, they worked together. And chess is often said to be completely unstageable because the plot is completely crazy and there's a lot of problems with the book, but the score is totally great. And, you know, it's pawned like a big pop hit, like One Night in Bangkok, so they could yeah. totally, they still had it, obviously. And then they wrote this epic about Swedish immigrants in, <laughs> to Minnesota in the 19th century. It sounds like the most dreadful topic ever you know we're starving we're gonna go on this voyage to minnesota like the promised land this will never be staged here because it's prowling it's actually not very pop at all it's more in their kind of neo-romantic neoclassical mode and Mm -hmm. probably their most ambitious project to date you got to give them credit. They've never been afraid to test their limits. Like in Fernando, when they're experimenting with that whole Spanish sound. Yeah, that was a, that's, that's also not one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. But, but, uh, but I like that because you're objective I, I about of, them. Well, I mean, everybody has clunkers. They're, I'm not big on their, on their Spanish vein, let, let's say. That's <laughs> just Spanish not, period, uh, yes. About the Hacienda is just pretty awful. There was something. We had John Savage, the music critic from the UK, on the show, and he said that Fernando was personally responsible for the for punk, punk emergence in, in the UK. Well, let's go back to the sublime then. Dancing Queen, what made that song a hit? 
Well, Dancing Queen is this rare song that's an anthem, and there's very few songs qualify. I, I think Gaga really figured that out the hard way when she did Born This Way. You can't write a song and say, I'm going to write an anthem. An anthem is kind of an organic thing that becomes one because there's an identification between the song and the audience, and the audience finds the song on its own. And that is such the case with Dancing Queen, where it's really... It's really odd because it's one of those songs where it's also a little sad. There's always this sad undercurrent. That, to me, are the songs that work the best with ABBA, where it's a very catchy melody and there's there's something a little wistful about it. Well, the person it. observing uh, is kind of longing, like almost like mm-hmm. admiring this person and realizing I'm not this person. I can't be, I can't be like that person, right? But at the same time, there's, there's nothing bitter about it. It's very emotionally honest in that it's not pandering. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, of course, you know, it helped that the double meaning of queen in that sense was grabbed onto. You can dance, you can jive, having the time of your life. Ooh, see that girl, watch that scene, we the dancing queen. And it's one of those things, to me it's a mystery, for instance, that... Were they fully aware of that when they wrote it? Right, the appeal to the gay community. I really think they had no intention whatsoever of of courting that particular audience. They really meant a queen, a queen of the dance floor, someone who (laughs) rules the dance floor. That directness is appealing. We're not filtering this. We're not making you figure out the meaning. We're being very direct because it is a second language kind of issue. You know, I feel the same way about The Winner Takes It All. It kind of lays it out. The winner takes it all The loser standing small Beside the victory That's her destiny My wife just melts whenever she hears that song. You know, it's one of those... Well, and you mentioned that earlier, the... Elizabeth, that you had these breakups and you would, oh. you would play their music and I was immediately thought about this song as one that, you know, you might play when, you know, when you're... When you're going through a rough patch, you know? Actually, I wouldn't play that one because it's way too close for comfort. Uh, <laughs> but that was one that uh, Bjorn wrote after his own divorce. And it's very much drawn from that episode in his life. But what's interesting also is there's a kind of conversational flow to it. The lyrics are very matter-of-fact. I did this, I did that, I felt this, I felt that. It's very uh, unadorned. It's lyrics as conversation with a friend, which is something I I miss a little bit in in pop now. This kind of drawing people in through the flow of of conversation is something they were really good at. And and Bjorn Bjorn was writing the lyrics, and he was particularly good at that. So for a novice who wants to get into ABBA, the greatest hits collection, Gold, is probably the best place to start. But if they want to see how these songs fit in context, which album should they go to next? Well, I would vote for The Visitors. I mean, it's a bit of a downer, but that's probably the one that will surprise most people who come from Abba Gold. It's mm-hmm. very somber. They're really getting into a synth arrangement uh, at that time. I mean, this is kind of like the cusp of synth pop in England, 81. And they're not going full on with that, but it's definitely there. The Bennett never officially broke up. 
Right. So when they made that album, they fully thought they would make others. And yet it feels really like, ah, this is the end of the line. There's, it's, I, I can't imagine what they would have done after that. Will they ever take that billion-dollar offer and reunite and be on the same stage again? Well, there's been recent developments that my, my, my spies in Sweden have been telling me about <laughs> very excitedly. And it has nothing to do with money. But, for instance, Agnetha, who was a recluse for years and years and years, has been a bit more public. She was actually doing promo and interviews for her last solo album. And uh, Frida has come down from her Swiss mountain, which she's been living for quite a <laughs> while now. And Benny has become more and more involved in local issues in Sweden, for instance, he's been getting involved in some urban planning issues in Stockholm. Mm -hmm. And at one point, he had made noise saying that if it would help to defeat the project, it was particularly opposed against that he uh, would get the other three together to do some kind of benefit against that project. A few years ago, I would have said this will never happen. But now I'm actually not that sure that it will never happen. And I wouldn't be surprised if they did a one-off. They could even do just one song. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I think it will happen because before it was always, wow. no, no, never, we'll never do it. And now it's always, well, if the right things come, you know, mm. if we happen to be in the right place <laughs> and I think they're going to do it. Wow. Breaking news on sound opinions. The, the thought of 65, 70-year-old <laughs> Bjorn, Benny, Frida and Agnetha on stage just, just doing it one more time. That just warms the cockles well, of my heart. Well, but you know what's crazy too is that they were – even when they were in, the, in their 30s because when they did ABBA, they were all in their 30s. They sounded like old people sometimes. Yeah. They were not like, <laughs> I'm, I'm young and I'm going to go crazy things. I'm going to – you know, it was not the sound of crazy libido. Yeah. That so often propels rock and roll. It was really more mature. It was always mature people. And that's why I think they could totally do those songs now mm-hmm. because they're not going to sound ridiculous singing them. All right. So we're going to be in the front row. Greg Koch of Dear Goddess and Elizabeth Benson-Telly <laughs> yeah. when the ABBA reunion happens. Hell or high water. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Elizabeth, for coming on Sound Opinions. Well, thanks. Greg, that wraps up our ABBA Spectacular. What do we have on the show next week? Jim, get out your hankies because we're going to play some songs that are going to make us cry. We have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, Anthony Martinez, and our intern, Jake Smith. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Frank Manzo calling from Staten Island. I just wanted to thank you guys for doing that little bit on Frankie Knuckles. I've always thought that it would be really cool for you guys to do a bit of a show on uh, maybe the history of house music or the history of DJs. That would be a pretty interesting show.
show for your listeners and definitely for me. Hi, this is Don calling from Los Angeles. I just listened to your episode with Georgia Maroder. I was really hoping you guys would have talked to him about his collaboration with Sparks, particularly the album Number One in Heaven, which is one of my favorite records, and I think it's one of the most criminally overlooked albums ever made. solid record from beginning to end and it kind of marks marks this transition from a glam rock band to sort of a prototypical new wave band and I think it has a lot to do with Georgia Maroder's production as well as his musicianship on the record okay This is Stephen Zakos from Emmaus, Pennsylvania, and I wanted to just make one comment, that if a song is good enough to be on one of your desert island jukeboxes, it should be good enough to play the entire song. So just play the whole song. When you cut it off, it's a great song, a great groove, and then you cut it off, it's just a buzzkill. Have a good day. Please don't stop that song from Hi, my name is Steve. I live in Central Oregon. I like the Giorgio Moroder program that you did. His music seems to bring out a, a haunting nostalgia in me. Every time I hear, you know, Take My Breath Away or Call Me or Donna Summer's music, I something deep inside me, I feel. Keep up the good work. Bye. Scott Lake from Colorado Springs. My daughter and I were listening to the Giorgio Moroder interview, and we both looked at each other and were thinking, who does this guy sound like, at least from a voice standpoint? And it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. I played uh, the synthesizers and made the tracks. Crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentation of their women. I composed it on the spot, and uh, she started to sing with that high voice. Hasta la vista, baby. It was really hard to listen to the whole interview and not picture Arnold there in the studio with you answering all these questions about Donna Summer. So just made for interesting visual image. Now we've got to go see what Mr. Moroder really looks like. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. PRX.